Hey gang, good morning. Good to be with you here on our uh, Tuesday morning for our Tuesday morning devotion, looking in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, his second letter that we have in Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 17 is where we're at today. Now, uh, let me apologize first off for missing our appointment last week. Um, I was actually with my brother and friend and co-host of 30 Minutes in the New Testament, Daniel Price, last week in Dallas to record uh, some 15 Academy courses that we are doing together. Uh, keep your eye out because, keep your eye out, keep your eye on the look because soon that will be released. Dan and I are doing a six session course on the life of Christ according to the Gospel of Luke and uh, that was a lot of fun to do last week. Uh, that course should be available fairly soon for you to enroll in so that's what I was doing that's why I wasn't here with you last Tuesday but I'm glad to be here with you again today so uh, today we're gonna talk a little bit about victorious Christian living um, of course that's a very uh, has been a very popular phrase a very popular idea and uh, in its essence the idea of living in Christ's victory isn't a bad one at all but uh, what this phrase tends to go on to describe is perhaps, well, things that don't really match with what victorious Christian living actually looks like in Scripture. Uh, I think what usually comes to mind when we think about victorious Christian living is prosperity or miracle working or ease, comfort, you know, that sort of thing. And at least in the old school version of the phrase, it used to mean, you know, uh, having victory over sin. You know, that was sort of the way it was used back in the day when it became a popular phrase. Um, but the truth is, when we actually look at the victorious or triumphant Christian life, uh, we see that it's not necessarily easy at all. It's not comfortable. It's not necessarily prosperous. Or for that matter, it's not even lacking sin. It's, uh, in fact... Life is described as a battle, as a wrestling match between the old and the new nature, between the flesh and the spirit. And so one is, is indeed triumphant in Christ, but triumphant through life's ups and downs, mountaintops and, and valleys. And that is what Paul, I think, is going to go on to describe today in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 through 17. It reads like this. Now, if anyone has caused pain... He has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, let's just pause to observe what it is Paul is talking about here. What he's talking about is actually a triumph of church discipline. If you go back to his first letter to the Corinthians, you're going to see Paul rebuke the Corinthian church for allowing a, and, and even endorsing 
a couple that is committing an incestuous relationship. The idea seems to be that they were, they saw themselves as, quote, so free in the gospel that a man could have a relationship, a sexual relationship with his stepmom, and everybody just thought, hooray, we're free, we're, we're liberated, we don't have to follow society's norms, etc. And Paul rebukes that and says, no, 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 you can't allow this kind of behavior to continue. I need you to, because there's unrepentant sin going on here, this needs to be dealt with. So they do. And by the time we get to this letter, it sounds as if in this passage they have asked this man and this woman to leave the congregation until they've repented. Uh, now this is in, in line with what Jesus talks about when he talks about church discipline. If you go back to Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, he gives us sort of an order of things to do with someone who continues to walk in unrepentant sin uh, and is thereby harming the congregation. He says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, step two, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him treat him as somebody that needs to be evangelized. It doesn't mean uh, treat them as if they're dead to you. It doesn't mean shunning. Uh, but it does mean that you look at them differently. You're not treating them as uh, the same way that you might treat the rest of the body of Christ around you because they're walking in this unrepentant way. That said, the purpose of church discipline always in Scripture, always, 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 is to indeed bring about repentance, is to indeed bring about uh, an acknowledgement of their sin, and a desire to turn away by God's grace. Does it mean that people are going to be perfect in their turning away? No. Does it mean that they won't struggle to turn away? No, of course they're going to struggle. That's, that is indeed the Christian life. That's what it looks like to walk, ironically, in victory in this life, is that you actually, <laughs> it's a struggle. And when that happens, when somebody says, yeah, you know what, I was wrong, and I'm sorry, forgive me, Boy, the church is to grant them full access immediately back into the fold. And Paul gives a number of reasons why in our passage today. He says, because if you don't, well, then the person could be swallowed up by excessive sorrow. Indeed, if they've acknowledged their sin and they come back to this place to see if they can be forgiven and all they hear is a, or all they get is a shut door in their face, well, you better believe that's going to lead to excessive sorrow. Paul also says that by them doing this and by them forgiving, this is uh, showing the congregation's allegiance to the gospel, which of course declares God forgiving us. Um, <clears throat> he also doesn't want the congregation to become legalistic. He doesn't want them to become legalistic Pharisees because he says the congregation could be outwitted by Satan. And so... You know, there, there's nothing that the devil likes more than to see a group of Christians that hold grudges against each other and refuse to forgive. I mean, there's, he's, it's the greatest for him. It's hilarious to him. It's, a, you know, it's a real win. Um, anything that can tear apart the body. And so Paul says, I don't want that to happen. Like, this guy is repented. You let him back in. 
and there's no more discipline to be had for him. So that le- so there's a triumph of church discipline here. A triumph of church discipline leads to somebody saying, I need grace, I need grace from Jesus Christ. There's also a triumph through change plans. There's Paul talks about this all in the terms of being triumphant um, throughout the passage, and we'll get there in a second. But he says in verse 12, when I right after he sort of changes the the tone, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them. And went to Macedonia. Now Macedonia is where the Corinthian church churches were. Uh, Acts chapter 16 verses 9 through 10 describes this event in a little more detail when Paul decided to change his plans. It says in uh, verse 9 chapter 16 of Acts, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, Immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul says in this passage, you know, there was a door open for ministry in Troas, but he doesn't feel comfortable about it. And on top of this, he's got a vision from the Lord telling him to go somewhere else. And so Paul does. Paul ends up going somewhere. Now, sometimes, you know, when, when plans get changed or when, you know, the, the way that we thought we were going to go doesn't happen, we assume a lot of the time that that's a failure, that that means that, you know, things aren't going the way that I should. And so it's, we're not walking triumphantly, but we're walking in the opposite direction of what we thought we were going to do. But actually, a lot of the time, and I need to learn this myself, a lot of the time, changed plans and things that happen in our life that don't go according to the way we think they should can indeed be a moment for God's triumphant leading in our lives and indeed is it, it, the fact is like as Paul will go on to say in verses 14 and 15 there's never a time that we're not walking in triumph when we're walking with Christ listen to what he says but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Now let's just pause there. What is this triumphal procession that Paul talks about here. By the way, how often are we led in triumphal procession? The word the word in Greek, you'll you'll be blown away. The word is just what it says in English, always. God is always leading us in Christ in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So what is the triumphal procession? Well, Will Durant, a historian, describes what a triumphal procession was back in Roman times, and I want to describe it to you just a little bit. Quote, Only those were eligible for it who had won a campaign in which 5,000 of the enemy had been slain. The unfortunate commander who had won with less slaughter received merely an ovation. For him, no ox was sacrificed, but only a sheep, an ovis. That's where we get the word ovation, ovis. The procession formed outside the city, 
<clears throat> at whose borders the general and his troops were required to lay down their arms. Then they would enter through a triumphal arc that set a fashion for a thousand monuments. Trumpeters led the march. Uh, after them came towers or floats representing the captured cities and pictures showing the exploits of the victors. Then wag wagons rumbled by, heavy with gold, silver, works of art, and other spoils from the war. Marcellus's triumph, for example, was memorable for the stolen statuary of Syracuse. That was in 212. Uh, Cyprio Africanus in 207 displayed 14,000 statues. And in 202, 123,000 pounds of silver was taken from Spain and Carthage. 70 white oxen followed, walking philosophically to their death. Um, let's see, what else does he say here? Oh man, it's such a skeptic, it's such a, a, a spectacle. Then the captured chiefs of the enemy, then lighters. These were people that went before the general uh, <clears throat> with, uh, with who could carry, let's see. These people that went before the general that would carry incense and all sorts of things. There was a flamboyant chariot. The general himself would wear a purple toga and on and on it goes. And then finally, the soldiers, some carrying the prizes awarded them, everyone wearing a crown, some praising their leaders, others deriding them, for it was an inviolable tradition that on these brief occasions, the speech of the army should be free and unpunished to remind the proud victors of their fallible mortality. The general mounted the capital to the temple of Jupiter, Juno, and Minerva laid his loot at the feet of the gods, presented an animal in sacrifice, and usually ordered the captive chieftains to be slain as an additional thank offering. Now I could go on, but you get the picture. The triumphal entry or the triumphal procession is this massive parade celebrating the victor, celebrating the general who has won the war. Who is the general in our triumphal procession? Christ. And who, who are his captives? Well, all of us. What's the main difference between those Christ takes captive and those the general would take captive in the Roman world? Whereas the general would sacrifice these captives or imprison them or enslave them, Christ takes us captive to set us free and thereby always leads us in triumphal procession. And because of this, we are, Paul says, the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. And this is just uh, a, a statement that really does hold true, that when, uh, you know, as you're walking with Christ, you will stand out. That's really Paul's uh, point here is that it will people will notice it uh, you know the way he that I love the picture like you're gonna stink um, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have an aroma he's not being literal there but he's you know he's bringing up the idea of the triumphal procession and all the incense that would flow to the people uh, and so to the ones who had been defeated to the enemy to Satan and his minions you know to those who uh, reject Christ and this general's victory, well, of course, that smell reminds them of their defeat. But uh, the smell of victory is a sweet smell to those who have been set free by this general. And then finally, Paul talks about, we'll wrap it up here, having triumph in his own insufficiency. So 
there's been all sorts of triumph language here. He says at the end, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? And, and you know, it's a rhetorical question. He, he says, who is sufficient for these things? End of verse 16, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The word for sufficient is competent or equipped. As Paul thinks about what, he's, what God has called him to do, leading a church through discipline here, uh, preaching, traveling, evangelizing, dying, being imprisoned, he recognizes that he isn't qualified in and of himself to deal with all of it at all. And if you've ever served in ministry, pastoral ministry, or any ministry for that matter, there should be the same sort of recognition. Man, I'm not, you, know, you know how many times I've walked up to the pulpit going, I am not, I should not be doing this. I'm not competent enough. I'm not good enough to do this. I mean, I think every, there's a, there's a level of humility that, that Paul displays here. So then where do you get your competence? Where do you get your sufficiency? Well, to get a clear answer to that, if you skip ahead just a few verses to chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says it this way. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You hear Paul's answer. He's not sufficient in and of himself. He's sufficient because God has made him sufficient. He has made him qualified. It's like Moses, you know, when Paul or when God raises up Moses and says, I want you to be the one that leads my people out of slavery. Moses says, I'm not eloquent. I can't, I can't speak. I, I, you know, I, and God says, what are you talking about? I'm the one who gives you the ability to do anything. You go and trust me and I'll take care of business. God says, I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Now, in contrast, Paul's opponents, remember Paul has some opponents in the Corinthian church that have invaded there, these super apostle fellas, uh, were claiming that they indeed were competent as ministers by themselves and that they deserved good pay for it. The, and thus Paul mentions people peddling God's word. And one of Paul's ways of dealing with the claims of incompetence brought against him is not to fight it, but to admit it to some extent. And this is the admittance that a free person in Christ can make. That yes, I'm not confident, I'm not competent in myself. I'm not able in myself. I'm not righteous enough in myself. I have everything I need to have in Christ and Christ alone. He is my sufficiency and he is the one that always leads me in triumphal procession because he is the one that has died for my sins and has been risen from the grave and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, always interceding on my behalf. All right, gang, that's it for today. We'll dive into 2 Corinthians 3 next week. Uh, I sh things should be a more normal now. Um, we should have a pretty regular schedule here uh, for the foreseeable future. So look forward to seeing you then. God bless you all.